Cora Faith Walker has spent a number of years in the legal and healthcare policy space, and very soon she'll be entering a different type of arena, the Missouri General Assembly. The Ferguson Democrat joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is on assignment today, so we have as our special guest host... It's me, Jenny Simone. I am our diversity fellow at St. Louis Public Radio. We are thrilled to have you on today, and we're also thrilled to have our guest on today. She is... Cora Faith Walker. And uh, you are... I don't think you're officially the state representative-elect of of your district yet. You have to win your general, but your, your, your district is so overwhelmingly Democratic that I think it's safe to say you will be in the Missouri legislature I next year. I think that that is correct, yes. <laughs> now, before we, we dive into your life story and, and some hardening issues, just tell us, uh, first of all, the number of your district and what it encompasses. Sure, sure. So I will be a state representative for the 74th district. Um, I live in Ferguson, Missouri with my husband, um, but the 74th district also includes parts of Florissant, Hazelwood, Jennings, Normandy, um, Norwood Court, Floridell Hills, Country Club Hills, and Calverton Park. And I think I got all nine of them. Wow. <laughs> so you get a prize for, for guessing them all, Every right? single time. I, I get a prize. Ding. <laughs> yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of a, your background, your professional background, and why you're interested in politics in the first place. Absolutely. I'm happy to. So um, I am a native of St. Louis. I was born here, but I was actually raised in a pretty small town, Tuskegee, Alabama. I'm small but infamous. Um, But I moved back to St. Louis uh, about 15 years ago to attend college. Um, I went to Wash U for undergrad, then attended St. Louis University School of Law to get my JD, and I also got a health law certificate from uh, SLU, and then went back to Wash U to get my master's in public health as well. And so I'm a healthcare attorney by by profession. For me, my... um I told you that I just moved here, and I'm also a transplant, um, sort of, but I didn't realize that you had been born in St. Louis. But um, I guess for me, like, why did it feel important for you to join or to try to get into politics with this whole background that you have where you could take this into a lot of places and you decided St. Louis? Sure, sure. Well, um, St. Louis has always been home for me. I've got a lot of family that lives here in St. Louis. We'd come back every summer for family reunions and things like that. So that was one of the really big uh, reasons why I decided to come to Wash U, just because I would have a kind of a big family support system, even though I was away from my parents. Um, And then I met a local and married a local, and they don't leave very often. (laughs) And so, um, yes, we decided to uh, make St. Louis our permanent home and um, decided to actually move to Ferguson to, to put down roots in, in the why, Ferguson Why did area. you decide to do that, and when did you decide to do that? Um, uh, we made the decision, or we started talking about it um, after the shooting death of Michael Brown. Um, you know, we really saw what was going on in the community and um, just felt really compelled to be a part of helping to move the community forward after um, what 
occurred in uh, Ferguson. And so um, we had some long discussions about it and uh, finally decided to, to take the leap and, and move in. It's been great. Um, we really love the community. We're both two kind of young professionals that are really kind of getting started out. And so um, it's actually a lot of great homes, great value um, in the area. And um, and in a really just really diverse area as well. Um, my husband uh, like has commented on just how great it is to just see all kinds of different people that have come together. And so we really love it. We really do. In context of you moving to Ferguson and making that decision after Michael Brown's death, um, there's an article where you're quoted in the Missouri Times from April where you say, I know there are a lot of people who are very, very passionate and dedicated and committed to moving forward, but I think it's important that folks take the time to understand that there's a lot of healing that has to happen before we can even talk about how to move forward. Um, could you expand a little bit about that, especially as a resident of Ferguson, mm -hmm. and if your position has changed on that at all, and what you mean by moving forward? Sure, sure. So, um, you know, it hasn't been, you know, very long since the consent decree from the DOJ came out. Um, I think it was earlier this week, even that there was the news that there's been a halt in um, Ferguson Florissant School Board elections. Um, there are a lot of uh, systemic issues and challenges that the community faces um, right now, and I think that. Kind of before we can talk about kind of what solutions are to those problems, uh, we have to acknowledge that the problems even exist and the challenges even exist, and um, have really open and honest conversations about what those um, challenges are. And it really seems as though there are lots of those conversations that are happening, and so um, that's that's a big part of that healing process. You know, just just really being able to to talk about what some of the systemic sorts of issues were that led up to um, the events on August 9th, 2014. So. Right. And do you feel like, I mean, it's really, I love that you use the term healing, especially mm -hmm. as somebody Absolutely. who's so focused on healthcare and expanding that. And for you, what is, what does that look like in the 74th district. Sure. So I've got a lot of I've got a lot of <laughs> ideas about that. Um, and and I have um, you know done a, some work uh, kind of not directly with the folks on the Ferguson Commission, but um, just in my work um, at the Missouri Foundation for Health um, at St. Louis University School of Law. Um, you know, one of the main sort of uh, goals in uh, the Ferguson Commission was expanding Medicaid. Um, there's been a lot of talk about trauma-informed um, care and trauma-based care that's important, um, school-based health clinics. So really, um, this, there's, and, and there's this growing recognition now about the impact of toxic stress on um, folks' health and, and their health outcomes. And so I mean healing in a figurative sense, but I also mean it in a very literal sense as well. So, Or I just wanted to ask about the, because right, you have a community that for the past two years between all of the actions that have been going on and like police interactions and tensions, like you have a lot of people who have suffered a lot of trauma. I mean, I know even from talking to people in our newsroom who just covered it, it was really tough. Absolutely. Um, and just thinking about how 
Medicaid expansion, but also just like how do you take care of your community as one person who, you know, is supposed to oversee this entire district? Yeah. Like, how do you grapple with that? I, I don't. Um, I don't take care of the community as one person. And that's um, and that's one thing that uh, my background um, in health policy and advocacy in this community and in the state has really taught me, um, you know, coalitions are very important um, to solving some of the most complex challenges that we're facing, challenges that we see in Ferguson um, and, and, and kind of throughout the, the region. And so um, really kind of bringing different stakeholders and different people together, um, sitting them down at the table, really appreciating and understanding their different perspectives and how that can help us reach a common goal um, is really important. So I by no means uh, think of myself as an individual person that's going to um, solve any of these problems, but really um, working to take a lot of the relationships that I've been able to build over the course of my career um, and continuing to um, leverage those to, to try to help uh, tackle some of these issues is, is really the approach that I'm taking. One thing that I've noticed, because I followed the Ferguson Commission very closely, and I've also been following the progress legislatively of some of the initiatives, and a lot of them have not gained traction. And I'm not just talking about the law enforcement piece, because there's also the education piece and the health care piece. And it didn't seem to me that the Republican-controlled legislature wanted to adopt many of the provisions of the Ferguson Commission. So you're going to be going into the legislature. You're probably going to be in the super minority. But I sense from your background, you have a pragmatic streak and a get things done attitude. So with all that backdrop in mind, how are you going to convince people to make these things priorities? Well, I think one of the uh, most important things that I can do even before I get up to Jeff City is help to get Chris Coster elected uh, for go uh, to governor um, as the governor. Um, if you look, we've actually got two very recent examples of the importance that um, governors and gubernatorial leadership plays in healthcare. Um, if you look at Louisiana and then if you look at Kentucky, um, kind of two sort of different. Um, roles, I guess, if you will, that the governors have played there. Um, you know, Bobby Jindal is one of the staunchest opponents of Medicaid expansion, and the newly elected governor of Louisiana made Medicaid expansion one of his major campaign platforms. And they have just, they've, they've gone through and they've expanded Medicaid. Kentucky, on the other hand, which um, kind of was an early adopter and um, very much so um, an enigma, we, we would call them, um, because they both, uh, expanded Medicaid, and they also set up their own health insurance exchange and have really seen a lot of successes from adopting or implementing the Affordable Care Act uh, following the governor's um, leadership. Well, they've got a new governor now who ran on repealing Medicaid expansion in the state. And although he's walked back his um, kind of original sorts of plans to completely repeal the program because it is so popular and has been effective in the state. Um, you know, we're really seeing how much of a role the governor's are, has played in that state as well. And so I really think that with the right sort of leadership um, from the very top, that will begin to get us towards having real conversations about ways in which we can expand access to health care um, in, in, in the state.
I wanted to, as well as the diversity fellow, I spend a lot of time trying to refocus conversations about minorities in um, St. Louis away from this black-white divide that I feel like we see so often. Well, and it's reflected in the population, right? It's almost 50-50. Have you done any work with other minority communities and to try to reach out to immigrant populations that are, you know, here trying to do the, you know, Medicaid expansion applies to them too, and it could be very helpful for them. Um, but yeah, just sure, absolutely. So um, when I was at the Missouri Foundation for Health, um, we uh, were uh, con- took the lead on creating the Cover Missouri Coalition, and um, Casa de Salud was very, very. Um, integral in the work that we were doing around providing in-person assisters and navigators uh, to some of the immigrant populations that exist uh, here um, in and around the St. Louis area. Um, You know, the Affordable Care Act also has uh, class standards, which are culturally linguistic uh, appropriate standards that basically say that um, in the provision of care and services around health care, they have to be culturally competent. And so, um, a lot of the work that Casa de Salud did was to really help make sure that the navigator programs, the in-person assistant programs that uh, we were um, implementing with Cover Missouri uh, made sure to reach out to those uh, diverse populations outside of just, um, you know, um, black people or minor- uh, those sorts of minorities. So, yes. Yeah. So, um you know, you mentioned Chris Coster, and I think that he's trying to, to toe kind of a, a, an interesting line. I think that if you look at how he reacted to the Ferguson Commission report and a lot of policies, there's a lot less bellicose than the Republican candidates in that primary, including Eric Greitens. But he's also gotten the endorsement of the Fraternal Order of Police. He's opposed, for example, to independent prosecutors for police-involved killings. And he, too, has talked up his allegiance to law enforcement, which many people see as kind of code for saying the Ferguson protest movement and activist movement is wrong, basically. Now, there are other people like Shemed Dogan, who we had on recently, who said that's a false dichotomy, that you could be pro-police and want a lot of the changes that are going on. Um, what do you kind of make of, of, of Coster's line walking in many respects on that? Um, well, I don't envy him for having to do it, I, I'll say. Um, but, you know, I, I really, I, I definitely can speak to um, the role that law enforcement played in helping us get probably as close as we ever got to expanding Medicaid. Um, it was when the Sheriff's Association came up and testified about how um, many of their uh, officers were becoming first responders for people that were having mental health crises and how they are just not really equipped to do that sort of work and the need for people to get access to health care to get access to mental health supports um, so that they are not having to interact with law enforcement in those sorts of ways and um, you've actually seen a kind of I guess, expansion of that sort of idea with um, the White House and their data-driven justice initiative, which basically is this whole idea of trying to take people who 
are nonviolent drug offenders or people who are having mental health crises, and instead of um, arresting them or putting them into um, some sort of in, in jail, incarcerating them and overpopulating our prisons, um, having these sorts of pre-arrest diversion programs that have proven to be really effective. And I'm actually really excited about uh, our new circuit attorney, Kim Gartner, um, and, and that was a major uh, goal poster or campaign platform of hers, you know, really trying to figure out ways to get people access to health care or the social supports or services that they need instead of putting them in prison. Um, and basically, you keep them healthier, you keep them out of prison, and, and you end up saving money and you save and you save costs because um, they are not being put into expensive prison. Being in St. Louis has been really heartening to see all these really amazing women of color in leadership positions. And there's this phrase that I hear a lot, you can't be what you can't see. And if you don't see people that look like you in positions of leadership, you can't imagine yourself in them. And I would love to hear about your sort of mentors coming up in this space that I think for women, especially women of color, you know, medical fields, law, politics, like all of these things are really can be super unwelcoming for women, especially women of color. So I would love to hear a little bit more about your mentors and like how you got here to feel empowered enough to be like, I'm doing this. Yeah, sure. you're doing the politically speaking podcast. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And it's it's really uh, funny that you should mention that because I have uh, been talking about that uh, recently over the past week or so. Um, just the um, sort of dynamic women of color that I am seeing that are being more represented in politics here in Missouri. Um, I've got an incredible mentor, uh, Tashara Jones, who um, is someone that I have been able to just talk to about um, you know, career sorts of uh, moves and then just also kind of just what it means to be in a certain space oftentimes as the only woman, um, oftentimes the, and especially as the only woman of color. And so really being able to kind of talk about um, just kind of what those experiences are like and just kind of how to navigate that a sort of um, field that is typically and traditionally um, predominantly white male um, uh, representation. Um, and, and I really feel like what we are seeing in and around uh, this area especially is um, a group of dynamic women of color who are supporting each other um, and, and really understanding that uh, we need to be at the table. You know, black women are traditionally the um, one of the highest demographics, it turns out, in terms of the electorate, in terms of voting. Um, black women are also um, the demographic that is traditionally or typically the highest educated uh, demographic. And um, we also control, I think, 83 cents out of every dollar that's spent in the black community um, is controlled by black women. And so, you know, we're an important part of the electorate. We're an important part of, you know, education. And we're an important part of the economy. We should be an important part of electoral politics as yeah. well. And so, um, you know, really working to kind of build that leadership pipeline and working with um, other women has has been wonderful. And, um, you know, having great mentors uh, like Tashar has really been empowering for, for me to take this leap. So. I, I'm glad you asked that question, Jenny, because one of the things I've noticed in the Missouri legislature is uh, I think the number of women has grown over the past couple decades. It's still pretty small by percentage. But the 
African-American senators, for example, have been exclusively women for like 10 or 15 years. I don't actually remember the last time an African-American man was in the Senate. It might have been like Lacey Clay back in the early 2000s. So that just kind of shows that not only have they been able to get a foothold of power there, but they've been able to sustain it. Like, you know, 2012, for example, in the 5th Senatorial District was a primary between three women, Jamila Nasheed, Jeanette Mott Oxford and Robin Wright Jones. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you can t- you can take a message from that because I know you're going to the House before the Senate, but it does seem like while there is a long ways to go, there has been some sustainability on that front. I don't yes. know if you've noticed that as well. Yes, I, I, I absolutely have, mm-hmm. and and it it seems like it's going to continue because I, I have had the opportunity to talk to, talk to you and and get to know other very dynamic women who um, aren't just involved in electoral politics as candidates, but as key staff members, as, as key decision makers, as um, operatives. And so um, there's definitely a pipeline of, of folks that are coming. And so, yeah, I think it's you're going to see it's going to continue. Do you think that you talked about Medicaid expansion mm-hmm. a lot? If Chris Coster is the governor, I'm sure he's going to make a big push for it, just like Jane Nixon made a push for it at different points of his administration. How, how successful do you think that strategy is going to be because there's it seems like there's an ideological opposition to medicaid expansion and if the the people with the ideological opposition have the numbers it makes it very hard to succeed what's kind of your take on that um i i think that i think that you are are right in the one of the biggest challenges is kind of being that sort of ideological disconnect um between folks who recognize and understand the economic source of opportunities that expanding Medicaid could bring to the state. And, and then also, you know, the fact that we could help cover uh, hundreds of thousands of people in the state. Um, that kind of butting up against people who just, it's Obamacare, we're not going to be for it. Um, but I, I do think that there are folks that, on, on both sides of the aisle, on, on the Republican side of, of the aisle, who really recognize the opportunities that exist when you have the federal government being willing to put up $2 billion and what that could mean in terms of offsetting some of other funds in the state general revenue. And um, I am optimistic that um, as a new administration comes in, some of the pushback that that um, has been um, prominent in the state legislature uh, will start to subside. Um, and and then I think another thing that that's important is that, um, and and I, I do think that uh, Attorney General Costa really understands and recognizes this, as well as uh, folks in leadership in in the legislature, is that. Um, we have opportunities to not just expand Medicaid, but also improve on the system as well, and and to um, take advantage of, you know, some new opportunities uh, with waivers um, that are going to be coming available in 2017, and and really positioning Missouri to transform the healthcare system entirely, and not just solely by expanding Medicaid. So, um, using um, care coordination models, um, trying to make the programs more efficient, uh, 
eliminating some of the bureaucracy and the red tape, kind of streamlining some of the processes to, to try to expand on innovations that um, we've kind of currently got like community mental health centers that are, that are national models for um, effective care. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of other ways that we can improve health care in, in the state um, outside of just expanding Medicaid. I wanted to um, ask a little bit about campaigning. I noticed mm-hmm. in your, like, you're so hip. Your Twitter is, like, you're posting about health care and, like, social justice issues, and then you're talking about, like, Frank Ocean's new album mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. like, all this stuff. So how has that, I mean, especially as a younger person entering the space with, like, all the savvy around Twitter, Instagram, probably Snapchat, all these things, I mean, how has that impacted your ability to campaign, but also who has it given you an audience with that you don't think you otherwise would yeah, have had? Sure, sure. Um, you know, it, it's really funny that you, that you mentioned that because I <laughs> sometimes feel like I am the most technologically unsavvy person that exists. Um, I definitely am still a fan of a handwritten note, um, but um, it it's, it's fun and it really shows kind of a different side of politics that I think um, is important to see and, and, and campaigning that's important to see. Um, just kind of, you know, being able to be positive, being able to um, just kind of show that you can have fun while um, trying to make a difference has been something that's been great. And, you know, I've got a pretty just broad network of friends that um, and supporters that don't just uh, live in the St. Louis area. So it's been great to be able to just kind of share my experience all around. Uh, my uh, 75-year-old grandmother in uh, Dadeville, Alabama, um, called my mother because she saw a post about um, me at a golf tournament or something like that. And so, you know, it's it's really been great to just keep everyone um, aware of what's, you know, been going on. And so um, it's really felt like I've had support just both in the district, but just kind of throughout throughout the country yeah, as well. I, I think there's some important context here that may have made your social media a lot happier is that you ran against an opponent that primaried <laughs> Sharon Pace and got 20% of the vote then, and I don't think raised a lot of money. So out of all the open seats, you probably had one of the lesser competitive ones, which with no disrespect to Mr. Houston, he just didn't really have the campaign apparatus or the strategy to really compete with you when you had all these endorsements and support and money and organization. So did that make the situation a lot easier compared to maybe, say, the your colleague that ran against four people and almost lost re-election, Courtney Curtis, for example. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I, that, I think that that's a very valid point. Um, but, you know, I, I think that even if I would have had a more um, – formidable opponent, I still would have taken the strategy. Yeah. Um, going forward, or at, at the very beginning, we knew that we wanted to um, run a positive campaign and, and put out positive messages, um, regardless of what might have happened. And I so. ask that because there are some, I mean, the nastiest races I've seen in St. Louis are, are Democratic primaries. Yes. I mean, I'm just going to be flat out honest there. In 2014, I saw some of the worst races I've ever seen over a seat like yours, a heavily Democratic seat, where there are very few issue distinctions between candidates. And at the end of it, I felt sick over some of the things. Um, I'm not really sure what the solution is because, you know, when people get competitive, they often get negative and often personal. 
But, um, you know, that's kind of been a reoccurring theme in Missouri politics that the personal stuff gets in the way of policy. Yes. I'm sure you've noticed that as well. Yes, absolutely. And um, and I have been very fortunate that I've been able to stay in my policy wonk lane, um, if, you, if you will. And, um, and, and to be completely candid with you, I don't see myself really going out of that. Um, I look at facts and evidence and numbers and statistics and make arguments um, based on what seems like uh, might be the most sound policy decision. And I think that it's important for people to really elevate uh, conversations um, to policy and not focus on personal um, issues or um, kind of make those sorts of negative attacks. I mean, I, I think that it does a disservice to um, any sort of progress that we might want to try to make um, because while uh, St. Louis is, um, you know, very, very democratic, um, there's an entire state of Missouri. Um, you know, Nate Silver's uh, still project projecting that Missouri's going to go for Trump right now. And so, you know, that's the reality of the political landscape. And so um, I think it's really important to focus on the sorts of similarities that that we have and, and, and really try to build unity um, as a party because of what the rest of the state looks like. And so, um, you know, I'm... I'm I'm still optimistic uh, that that uh, we've got a good group of folks that are coming up that um, will be able to really work together and and um, and have a united front so that we can hopefully um, advance some uh, progressive issues in um, a, a very difficult political climate in the state in the yeah. state house. My my last topic question is I think one of the first issues that may hit your plate so to speak is right to work mm -hmm. because especially if Eric Greitens wins there is kind of an assumption that regardless of the the numbers they're going to try to pass that very quickly and they may break a filibuster. If it's Chris Coster you're going to have to get over a a veto proof majority which may not be possible in the house. So my, my, I, my, I put that backdrop in mind because it's going to be completely different posture depending on who's governor. But, I mean, where do you kind of stand on that issue? And do you expect it to be kind of one of the big first fights of the 2017 session? I do think that it's going to be one of the first big fights that happens up in Jefferson City. But I want to make it clear that I am 100% against right to work, and it is purely um, for policy reasons. Um, if you look at right to work states versus non right to work states, um, in right to work states, people are about 18% less likely to have health insurance than in non right to work states. And that is people across the board, regardless of whether or not they are in unions or not. Um, people lose about 20 cents out of every dollar that they earn in right-to-work states versus non-right-to-work states. And I think that when you look at places like St. Louis that have um, poverty levels that really do eclipse the national average, right-to-work, and if Missouri were to become a right-to-work state, would be absolutely detrimental to this region because we need to have a strong working class to have a strong middle class to try to help 
even begin to tackle some, you know, th these these growing poverty rates. So um, I am going to do everything that I can possibly do to keep Missouri from becoming a right-to-work state. Um, I... Well, I'm glad that you're talking about political scuffles because I wonder if there's not this like honeymoon phase of being so excited to like get in there because it is your first. Um, but I wanted to hear a little bit about your the future of your political ambitions, if there are any. Like after this, where do you hope to go? Oh, well, so I, well, I want to just respond to uh, the the kind of idea that I'm so optimistic. You know, I have been up in Jeff City working for the past four years trying to get Medicaid expansion passed. So I am not um, going in there with rose-colored glasses. I, I really do understand um, that it's going to be an uphill battle to, to try to get um, Medicaid expansion or any sort of um, health care reform uh, legislation passed. Um, that said, I am um, very confident in the skill sets and expertise that I bring to the table. And now, um, as a legislator, I will be able to um, add to the conversation that um, that you know has been going on about um, expanding Medicaid or, or reforming uh, the healthcare system here in the in this in the state. Um, in terms of uh, future political ambitions, um, this is my first time ever being in elected office. So I've got to see whether or not I actually like it or not, um, first and foremost, before I can even begin to think about um, what my next steps might be. So I'm just trying to get in there and try to trying to get some um, positive legislation passed to help the folks in my district in the 74th district. Well, as uh We'll wait a year or two, and maybe I'll ask you if you'll be one of the 700 people that are going to run for the state senate seat in your district. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give you some time to think about that. We, <laughs> I appreciate that. We, we appreciate having you on. We'll, we'll have to have you back when you're actually legislating and not just talking about goals. Uh, for uh, all of our stories, I'd STL, be happy to. Yeah. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Jenny on Twitter at J-N-N-S-M-N. -N -N. Wow. That's at it's my whole name without any vowels. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is very creative. And how would we follow you on Twitter? I'm at Corafaith Formo. Well, yeah, wait, yeah. the big question. Is it the number four or four spelled out? It's the number four. You're, you're part of the number four uh, cadre <laughs> Indeed there. Indeed I am. Uh, we'll be back next time. Until then, so long. So long.